I'm a lean, mean, speed thingy. You're listening to the podcast, So There I Was. It's how all great aviation tales begin. This show is episode 54, You Quit or Move Forward. How profound is that, Fig? Well, it's pretty darn profound. And when you listen to the episode, you'll get why. Holy cow. What an outstanding individual, Punchy, Brian Scholl. We did struggle with some titles on this too, right? I mean, Punchy brought brought his A-game to us tonight, and it was so much fun to talk to this gent. He is, folks, go look it up on the internet if you'd like to uh, look on YouTube. He is the man who was in the cockpit on the night of what they call speed check, and we didn't bother asking him that story because it's out there on the internet, and you can go find it and listen to it, and it's great and it's funny. But he flew everything from reciprocating T-28s in Vietnam, where he was downed and almost died, spent a year recovering, told he'd never, never fly again. And out of that came the quote, you quit or you move forward. The top doc in the Air Force came to him and said, I like your attitude. I'm going to give you a shot. He's got hours in the A-7. He's one of the first 11 pilots to ever fly the A-10. And then he's only one of 90, 90 pilots ever to fly the SR-71. And the irony there to me is the A-10 is probably the slowest tactical jet ever to fly. <laughs> and the SR-71, to this day, 60 years after its initial design, is the fastest jet in human history. Well, only if you count 32 miles a minute fast. Literally faster than a bullet. <laughs> Right. Right. And this right. episode comes at you fast, but it, it lasts long. This is a bit longer than most. It's uh, an hour and 45 with Punchy, but I'm telling you, it the time flew by. It was so much fun, and we hope you enjoy listening to this episode half as much as we did. This Hang was on. a blast. Hang yeah. on, because it comes at you at 32 miles a minute. <laughs> at least. At least. <laughs> at night. So sit back, relax. Don't sit on the ejection handle. Don't do it. comes Punchy. On the tanker, through the weather. Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Well, there I was, crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. So there I was. Which is how all great aviation stories start. Welcome to So There I Was. This is Fig with my co-host, Repeat. Where are you, Repeat? Hey, Fig. I'm home tonight for a couple more days, then I'm back off to work. But, uh, wow, we are privileged today to have an amazing guest with us. Our, our guest today is Brian Schull, former Air Force pilot who flew AT-28s in Vietnam, A-7s, A-10s, and is renowned for piloting the SR-71 Blackbird during the Cold War. Uh, since leaving the Air Force, Brian has become a talented photographer. And I guess you could say he was a talented for talented photographer in the Air Force in the SR-71. And is, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, no, uh, no stranger to uh, long-range lenses. But he's now the owner of GalleryOnePublishing.com. I've seen some of his photographs online and... The, Truly stunning is an understatement. 
he's also the author of several books, Sled Driver, Flying the World's Fastest Jet, The Untouchables, Mission Accomplished, Eagle Eyes, Action Photography from the Cutting Edge, the best of the best from the first decade of Mach 1, Blue Angels, A Portrait of Gold, and Summer Thunder. So, wow, that is an inadequate intro at best. But let me say to you, Punchy, call sign, uh, welcome to So There I Was. We're thrilled to have you with us. And I guess I'm going to open up with our first question is, which is, how did you become interested in aviation? My guess is, and I think I'm right, that your father might have been a Marine because I noticed you were born in Quantico, Virginia and (laughs) went to East Carolina University. That's very astute of you to uh figure that out. Very stupid. My dad was a Marine, and uh, I, um, the short stories that uh, one, I, I was pretty sure the Yankees were going to call me up to play third base at, at some point when I was old enough. Right on. But uh, in between, <clears throat> my dad took me to an air show at Andrews, a very big air show, a very good air show that had just about everything flying. And I was privileged to grow up in the 50s when more new jets were coming out every month or so that you can build the model airplane to. So I was, I lived in an era of uh, jet airplanes and Bonanza. And I saw my first air show and I always tell people, I kind of lost my virginity to an air show. I thought, Hmm, that's pretty uh, amazing. I thought maybe the Yankees would have to wait just a little bit, but then I, I learned something that uh, changed my life. Uh, I asked my dad, I said, well, how do they get to go to all these air shows? What do they do in between? He says, well, no, that the air show is not their main job. They're actually Air Force and the Navy uh, pilots, and they just do the air show so we can see their planes. And I said, wait a minute, there, there's a real job where I could fly airplanes and they would pay me to do this? He said, yeah, that'd be your job. You get to fly jets and they pay you. That's your that's your job. Well, that was my at eight years old, my... Uh, life took a new course. <laughs> I thought, if I could do that for a living. So, of course, I wanted a, a big Marine F-4 Phantom with the word Marines on the side. And my dad said, no, no, no. You're going to fly. Go to the <laughs> service where flying is the primary mission. If you want to carry a rifle, join the Marines. You want to drive a boat, join the Navy. And under no circumstances will my son be in the Army. Uh, but if you want to fly, you joined the, the Air Force. And my dad was was right. I got to fly so many more airplanes and, and had such a, a – in, I was in the cockpit for 20 years. I never had a staff job and never did uh, – Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't care about being a colonel. I, I wanted to fly. And I had 5,000 hours of fighter uh, time being in the cockpit for 20 years. The last day I was in the Air Force, I was in a T-38, landed at Beale, and drove off base. That's awesome. But it, it was just a matter of uh, building all the model airplanes. And my parents thought, he'll outgrow this, surely. And, <laughs> you know, I, I never did. Um, it was just something that uh, you, it's hard to explain to people who don't get that bug. They don't get bitten in that way. But when you are, it's the easiest thing to to feel and uh, be. And uh, I was fortunate enough to... Uh, didn't go to the Air Force Academy, didn't have ROTC, no, had zero hours of flying, and uh, wasn't real shiny those first six weeks of pilot training. Uh, I was a little behind, but I wanted it more than the other guys. And uh, right. And I really, uh, I really 
was was dedicated to that dream. And I didn't have a plan B. I, when I was uh, not doing real well the first few weeks in pilot training, I thought, Larry, well, what's your plan B here? Just then I didn't have one. So it was uh, kind of sink or swim. And uh, I, uh, I, I did. And uh, people like to look at me today and say, well, yeah, he was this uh, SR-71 guy. He must have been a really great pilot and, and just a tremendous aviator. And I, I like to tell people that when I started off, I was, it was pretty bad. I, I didn't know anything. <laughs> and, uh, I wasn't some gifted, natural uh, Charles Lindbergh kind of guy. You know, I, I had to really work at it hard. And it's a lesson I try to impart to young people and kids and audiences that it's okay to fail. It's okay to fall down, skin your knee. You know, it's not like everybody just aces everything all the way through. I went from number uh, 32 in my class to number six as we, we went through the, the year of the pilot training. And, wow. Um, it was just a real uh, joy for me to get to live my dream. And not everybody gets to do that in life. And now that I'm older and I look back on it, I realize how fortunate and lucky I was at every turn where I could have easily, for example, <clears throat> I, I was born with a crooked spine pretty badly. And the doctors uh, said, you're not, uh, the worst thing you could ever do is sit in the cockpit of a jet fighter and sit in that seat and pull heavy G-loads. You will really hurt your body. And I got in the Air Force and uh, somehow uh, they needed pilots really bad during the Vietnam era. And uh, a couple times I was taking physicals uh, later on and doctors tried to ground me and say, your your spine is out of limits. Uh, But... (laughs) I was always in such good shape and everything and very athletic that they, somebody else would just say, Hey doc, just need to look the other way here on this one. But nice. people ask me why I don't fly anymore today after uh, 20 years of, of doing that to my body. And then another year with the blue angels and, uh, and another winter training season with the Thunderbirds. Uh, yeah. I, I have a lot of aches and pains there that uh, on a, on a spine that never wanted to be in that seat. <laughs> <laughs> Can, right. I, can I back up and add, can I back up just for a, a second, Punchy? Because I uh, I had a little technical glitch and I and if I miss it, I apologize. What year did you go to pilot training? In 1970. 1970. 1970. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, you. and it was uh, near the near the end of the, the war over there and everything. I'm, and I uh, when I graduated pilot training, they didn't have we had like every C-130 and every B-52 assignment in the Air Force. And I had one F-4. And the top guy took that. And there was just nothing on the board unless you wanted a C-130 or a, a buff. And I saw that one assignment. It was a special uh, special ops thing. It was a T-28 uh, training of foreign nationals. And it was it sounded kind of interesting. And I thought, well, that's that's a lot closer to my dream than uh, a B-52 would be. And I, I, was, yeah. I wouldn't be an air training command at least. So an AT twenty eight is a uh, is a, t- a tactical a version of the T twenty eight. Well, yeah, there's an A, B, C, and D model. I got to fly every single model of the T twenty eight, and uh, great little airplane, just a tremendous yeah. air for all that it was asked to do. That looks like a handful of airplane. That is that is not for amateurs. That one. Oh, well, it no. was it was my Corsair. It was like my my uh, Marine Corsair. You know, I mean, right. I grew up as a Marine kid. You grew up uh, reading every book on World War Two and every. Flying, I read every flying book. I knew Pappy Boynton's entire life story, you know. And my dad knew a lot of those people, and he was he was not an aviator, but he uh, he was a great Marine, and and uh, he was a World War II, Korea, Vietnam uh, vet. 
Yeah. Just had a tremendous uh, career and lived a long life to 93. What what did your uh what did your dad do in the Marine Corps? My dad was uh, the head of the Marine band. He was a band officer, which no way that is amazing. That's awesome. When you go to war, you are chief of security. So when he went to Da Nang, he was uh, chief of base security there. Took his troops (laughs) out on patrols and everything, and was real proud to say he never lost uh, never lost a man. And uh, that is outstanding. His his troops revered him. I my I have a million stories about my dad. One is that when I was a kid, I asked him. I said, "How come the Marines?" don't have name tags. I said, the Navy and the Air Force and the Army, they have name tags. So I said, how do you tell the people under your command? And he looked at me and really sternly, he said, in the Marine Corps, you know your people. You don't need some silly name tag on the shirt. I love it. And you take care of them and you don't need, you don't need a name tag. That's outstanding. I thought, wow, that's really a good answer. I thought, it's interesting. And and that's how (laughs) that was, you know. Some of his uh, some of his troops were at his funeral, and they they said your your dad uh, helped me go from a nineteen year old kid out of control to uh, you know to adulthood. So uh, he was great, a great uh, marine. He took real pride. Taught us, you know, as a young child. It, it, people always want to know what what things molded me or formed me or motivated me. It was really growing up as a Marine kid, because if you've ever seen The Great Santini and everything, there's a lot of truth to that movie. Yes. You, yeah. you, uh, you don't, you, you don't uh, act subpar. You don't give up. You don't go to your Boy Scout meetings with the wrong uniform on, you know. And uh, right. He had a Boy Scout troop master who was a Marine gunny sergeant. <laughs> so I was a senior Marine for two years. I mean, really, that's you felt. Like it. <laughs> uh, and you know, at the time, we didn't appreciate oh, later no. life when you would not be living on Marine bases and you got out in the real world, you had no concept of how great that training was. Yes. And I'll just tell you for those people who don't comprehend what it's like growing up on a Marine Corps base. When I was eight or seven, I was throwing rocks near the railroad tracks one day in Quantico. Because I like throwing stuff. I like throwing rocks. Yeah, boys do. That's what, good, that's what we do. That's a very good pitcher in Little League. Yeah. And I'm throwing rocks, and I'm hoping a train would go by, so maybe I could you know, get the train or something. And this Marine major, I'll never forget, he's in his greens, and, and he's in this very small little kind of like little Rambler, Nash Rambler car or something, driving by, he screeches to a halt. And he yells out his window, not stop throwing those rocks or hey, what are you doing? Or, hey, kid, come over here. I want to talk to you. None of those things that you would expect. He said, cease and desist that action. (laughs) I got news for people. Eight-year-olds do not understand. First of all, the word cease. I never even had heard that. Cease (laughs) and desist that action. And and then he drove off. I went home uh, terrified, and I told my dad, I said, what do are, what are these words mean? And looking back, the greatest, the greatest education I ever had in my entire life that prepared me for everything was being grown up on Marine Corps bases and being in a Marine Corps Boy Scout troop and going to all those parades and uh, watching them play the national anthem every Sunday, pulling the big flag down. And uh, going to sunset parades there in Washington and, and learning about a history, pride, taking pride in your uh, commitment, your career and your uh, duty. 
How in the hell did you not end up as a Marine Corps aviator? My dad told me, he said, look, you want to fly. I don't want to see you sitting behind a desk in the Marine Corps after one stint. He said, you will always be a Marine at heart. Do not worry. And, you know, I was much to the chagrin of the Air Force. I always butted heads with because I I was more (laughs) the Marine guy. Yes. And they didn't know how to handle that. Oh, I totally, I totally get that in more than totally. one way. Trust me when you say uh, I am, I am loved or hated by Air Force uh, people that will tell you about Brian Shule. Yeah, they go like, yeah. well, he was just, he was just a flaming, you know, guy says <laughs> he stuck him out of his yeah. mouth. They couldn't believe it. That is fantastic. It prepared you for everything from laying in the hospital almost dying to to working out in the gym and taking pride in, in yourself and, and never giving up. And I read every one of those Marine Corps books in World War II. I, I, that was my whole high school years because I was fascinated by it. And I'd right. walk into the officers clubs and see the paintings on the wall. I'd say, what does quality control mean? You know, what is that? That's a great segue. I, I, I kind of, yeah. I'm very, I'm very intrigued about, so you, obviously you went to a pilot training and then you got uh, AT-28. So to talk us through that, your, what, what, um, were you, what were you doing over there uh, yeah. in the AT-28? What, what, well, what was that they, mission they, like? Uh, counterinsurgency was a big thing. And what they were doing was training uh, Laotian, Cambodian, and uh, Thai pilots to, uh, you know, they bought all these T-28s from our uh, country, and they were going to use them as uh, counterinsurgency against the Khmer Rouge. And so they were using so them as needed, uh, close air support type airplanes? Yeah. So they needed people to train them in, in advance, you know, and how to fly the airplane and be safe and everything. And it was a special ops wing and uh, no name, no rank. And uh, they didn't have any American markings on the planes or anything. But mostly we were just we were just training guys. It wasn't always real exciting. You know, some days it was. Uh, but uh, it was a, a near the end of the war and we weren't supposed to be in Cambodia. So we weren't we were like people denied our existence over there. We worked closely with Air America. They were in the same building right next door to us and everything but i never wore any rank or name tagging my flight suit for, for a little over a year over there and How about um, that the day the, the day my airplane went down you know i wasn't even supposed to fly at the second go of the day and i was leaving i said i got i got a handball match at four o'clock i'm gonna go home take a nap i've been up since five we're gonna and then uh, so don't bother me and the, the guy said yeah but you, you you know you're trying to build hours you want to you want to get into, into jets when you get back to the states. You need to build hours. So I, so I turned around. And <laughs> That's said, always right. the hook, right? Oh, you got to build hours for something, right? A said, different okay. job, airline pilot job, yeah. something, right? So I said, okay. I turned around and I, I took and my mission that day was to deliver cadmium batteries to a forward operating location, basically we were real familiar with, okay. south of uh, Thailand. There, yeah. it was a very simple thing. I, I had real. Uh, Good little airplane, and uh, <laughs> was gonna zip down there, zip back, and uh, something happened about ten miles from the field. And the CIA guys, uh, they came briefly later, said they think I was shot down. Uh, I don't really care which it was. The, all I know is uh, I had no throttle, uh, I had no uh, power, and my airplane was just sinking into the jungle, and I was already too low to bail out. There wasn't oh, any shit. option. So I thought, well, this is it. You're going to die and hit the jungle and I, there'll be a fireball. It'll just be an awful thing. So just close your eyes tightly, clench your fist. And uh, I always, in my talks, I always make a joke and say, uh, I figured I'd wake up in heaven painlessly in a second. <laughs> and then when I 
saw that the fire. didn't happen. Yeah, when I saw the flames around me, I thought maybe it went the other way. So. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> right on. <laughs> anyway, I quickly got myself out of the plane, and, and uh, that was a miracle in itself. There's about, about 20 or 25 miracles in my story that had to happen for me to be here today. Talking hey, Punchy, to uh, Punchy, just let's back up for a second. The T, uh, the AT-28, ejecting, ejecting was not an option. It did not have an ejection well, seat. Some of them had a Yankee extraction seat in them, which was uh, some form of ejection. Some just had a hard seat. Maybe just Mine was a hard seat that day. Okay. All right. So, so you, you, you had to stand up and use power to get old-fashioned way, which really yeah, you needed altitude and airspeed to do. Okay, thank you. So it was, um, it was uh, I'd say about uh, about 25 miracles had to happen for me to even still be here today. I had like 50 rounds of tracer ammunition in my vest. None of that went off. I had uh, I had a melted visor, so I did everything blind. I couldn't see. I couldn't get out the right way of the airplane because a tree was there, so now you did everything backwards. Oh, my And God. Your, uh, your connections melted so that the quick disconnect, uh, 40 pounds of quick disconnect pressure for, like, say, a radio com cord, was now uh, NA because uh, it melted. So it fused it, together. Fused. So I did some amazing uh, super universe hero uh, strength uh, things, and I, I actually broke a, a, a Comcord in half to get out of the airplane. Wow. It cost me use of this little finger, but uh, <laughs> they built a little hinge joint on it, so they couldn't flunk me on the physical. But anyway, that's another story. I got out and special forces guys uh, got to me fairly quickly and I was kind of in shock, but I wasn't in pain. I did. I just was numb. Mm. And uh, so they got me back to Thailand. And then that night, a C-9 just for me, picked me up at, uh, at uh, Thailand, took me all the way to Kadena to the burn uh, to a hospital where burn team came from Fort Sam Houston just for me. A nine man burn team uh, was flown wow. out just for one guy in this room in the hospital there at Camp Coon and uh, then let the games begin. Unfortunately, the numbness wore off. <laughs> yeah. I laughed, but it wasn't funny. It was uh, so your, your it body. Was where you learned, it's where you learned a lot about yourself, life, God, and, uh, and uh, choices you make. And that's the basis of my talks today. Are, it's about attitude, choices, and perspective. Those are, that's my three main points. And Attitude is something you can't teach, but it's something that's vital to everything you do. And I had a bad attitude first few weeks as I said, please, God, let me die. I can't do this. This is really bad. And I went from 180 pounds to 119. Wow. And that was, yeah. And uh, Over and what kind of period, uh, Punchy? This what, was what? about two, two to three weeks. And, but you you couldn't fight at that strength. You, your strength level was so low, your, your mental level just said, why, why am I even fighting? I'll never fly again. I'll never do anything again. I, I won't even, my body won't work right again. And this is way too much pain. And I haven't even started the surgery or therapy phase. That'll be take a couple of years. You know? Good so Lord. you just sort of wanted to give up, which was against everything I had just alluded to earlier about right, being right. a right. Get out trip on the, right. uh, Camp Pendleton and being a Marine kid. So there had to come a little reckoning where you had to, readjust that attitude which i did uh but i will i don't ever hesitate to tell people my talks uh, this is not a, a talk about uh, bravery or heroics it's a talk about reaching rock bottom and realizing uh, the long journey back that's necessary what you have to do and then and then making that choice 
to do it because you really only have two choices. It, you, you quit or you, you move forward. And it's that simple. Now, it doesn't mean it's the simple, it's the easiest choice. It might be the harder choice. But if you expect it to have any any life at all, then you better make that, that turn right at that intersection. So, did, did anyone help you on that on that choice, Brian? Or no, was it? No. no. Okay. You, right. you, many, many long, lonely nights there in the hospital. Yeah. And uh, it was just a matter of uh, and the, you, and you putting up a fight or not. And that was in the burn unit at uh, at uh, Sam Houston. Yeah, Okinawa. Yeah. Oh, in Okinawa. Yeah. And then they met. Then I got uh, just enough, well enough to put me on a C one forty one all the way back to to San Antonio or Port San Houston there. Okay. Burn center. And, and then and I spent about a year there with all the surgeries. Good there Lord. Yeah. Uh, well, what was the time? You're never going to fly again. And then when, once they said you're never going to fly again, I thought, well, why should I do all this therapy? I don't have anything to shoot for. So I pretended. Right. In my mind, I put a picture of an airplane up on the wall, and uh, which you weren't supposed to do. And that motivated <laughs> me. I just pretended I'm going to fly again. And that got me through the therapy. <laughs> and the nurse was not real happy. But the doctor came in and said, if that picture motivates this guy to keep doing as well as he's doing with his therapy, then leave it up there. What kind so, of airplane was it that you had on the wall? I had a picture of an F-106 over the snowy mountains in Alaska. Some old recruiting poster that I thought was just the coolest picture and uh, could have been any picture. And, right. Uh, I just had to have something. Right. And, and it burned the therapy, burned the uh, um, injuries and therapies are so difficult to get through mentally and emotionally that you have to just call on everything you ever learned at but every high school coach, every, every sport you played and every Marine Corps, uh, thing you learned and 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 being in that marine boy scout troop i'm telling you that was that was good i'm glad i, I went through that because right. those 25 mile hikes you know as kids and we weren't supposed to be doing that but the, he said you can do it if you, you got the right attitude <laughs> you you never know why god puts you through things in exactly. that until i really happens. think i was selected to my mom even said that she said oh you don't feel bad but she said you were selected dude. which was hard to swallow initially but later it is so uh, hard but it became in time a real she was so right my mom the two finest people i ever knew on the planet were my mom and and dad they were just really great it's amazing it's amazing to hear you say that that's awesome oh yeah absolutely without even the people that met them and knew them would say a similar thing Uh, but my mom she said i don't believe in miracles i count on and I said, Mom, come on. You know, but now I say that to people. And uh, God God has a plan that we're not in control of the universe. And you know, we have to, uh, it's how you respond. It's right. How you, uh, right. Can I, uh, can I interrupt yeah. you and just back sure. up for a second and ask you, how long were you at um, in Okinawa before they flew you to? It was only a couple months, but it seemed like about 10 years. A couple months. Only a couple months, he says. Yeah. Well, oh I mean, in human time, it was uh, about <laughs> barely less than two months. But in, in burn patient time, I was about a 12-year. Uh, yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's brutal. Okay. You, can't, you can't do anything for yourself except I sit there. I will not even tell you what went on in those two minutes. I will do oh. your show a favor and just say you can do more than you think you can do when you have to, but even when you don't want to. And, uh, yeah. And, well, Punchy, and, we, we, we've had a previous guest on, 
and um, he was burned pretty bad as well. And 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 he he gave us uh, an insight. And I know I know my man Repeat also has insight because his son was also a burn victim. So what an incredible experience! It is just well, it, it it, to this day, I it's see, barbaric. I, I like the way you said that it was an incredible experience. You didn't say it was a horror or tragedy or you're a victim because it it really, you could say all those things. You said it was an incredible experience and you're exactly right. Looking back on it now, I learned more about life myself, what's important in life for the rest of your life. It was a wonderful crash course in life appreciation (laughs) and learning. Now at the time you said, what a horrible tragedy. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, but on the other side, it's when you have the retrospect. Well, and, and I'm lucky enough to still be here to, to say I have that now, which is why I enjoy sharing my – I don't like reliving my story so much. I enjoy sharing what I learned from my story with my audiences now because they always think they're getting an airplane talk. And I go, no, I'm using the airplane as a vehicle to tell a yeah. story. Well, thank you Great. for that. Thank yeah. you for sharing that with us. Uh, <laughs> Well, so, okay. I, I, uh, for the aviator in me wants to, I, I got a lot of questions and, yeah. and it repeat, uh, I don't want to get in your way. So is there anything else you want to cover before I start firing questions? Aviation no, questions that's, that no, way? that's it. Yeah. So you, you, uh, let's get into the aviation. Uh, you obviously made it back to, uh, back so to a cockpit against all odds, like, by yeah. the way, well, well, against wait, all odds. Wait, how, how did you get there? May I interject here? Yes, now, please do. It's never done by one man. There's a lot of people helping you along the way that we never mentioned. So oh, I'm absolutely. just going to I'm just going to tell you one. Besides my surgeon, who was the greatest army burn surgeon guy, loved me, and he said, "You are you are the the poster boy for my whole theory that the the guys that do their therapy are the ones that are going to you know improve." Well, one day it. it, it the Air Force was just pissed off with me because I wouldn't sign the discharge papers. Nice. There's no way they could see me coming back to fly. And every every medical, they're just across town, 15 minutes away. It, San Antonio at Randolph is all the military personnel. Were they, were, were they were telling you just to go sign your discharge? You're going to yes. be medically well, discharged? They, they sent them to me. They just signed because we, we need to process you because there, there's no way your doctors have said we, that's extent of injury. Just oh, forget that's it. great. No one asked me. No one briefed me. No one talked to me. I just got these things, and I throw them in the trash because they represented <laughs> to me giving up. Yeah, they, failure, uh, failure, fire. because you failure mode. Yeah, that yes. was like quitting. And, yeah, so, Marines aren't Marines aren't raised that way. No, uh, so there had to be a way. There had to be a way to get over this that I couldn't even see. I couldn't even see a way to even talk to back to the Air Force to get back in, and because the, there's no way I could pass a physical and everything. So I just kept throwing them away. And if you don't think miracles happen, and, and this is one of 20 or 30, I'll just tell you one. I'm sleeping in my bed one day, and uh, there's a man in an Air Force blue uniform, a full colonel, standing right at the edge of my bed. And he's just staring at me. And I, I kind of wake up, and I, I go, who are you? Can I help you? <laughs> and he says, uh, are you are you Brian Shule? You Lieutenant Shule? And I said, yeah. I'm thinking they can't do anything more to me now. What right. the, you know, he said, <laughs> well, you know, you, uh, he says, you realize you, you've pissed off the entire United States Air Force. And I right. said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, you're, you haven't been sending back those discharge papers. So we sent it, three of them now. And uh, so I thought he was like a, one of the personnel people there. 
And I said, well, you know, if I do that, it, it seals my fate. Then I, I, what's my plan then? I said, now for me to get through all the therapy they got planned for me, I got to have some sort of goal, even if it's a fake one, that I might get to fly again or something or just I know I'll never fly. Again. I already knew that. So I said, so what's it to you? Who Who are you? And he said, I'm the chief flight surgeon of the entire United States Air Force. I'm the top doc. Nice. His office right there at Randolph. The top flight surgeon of the entire Air Force. He said, and I'll tell you what, I've talked to your doctor. And he says, uh, there's hope for you. And uh, when you think you can pass a flight physical, you come over and I will give you your physical. Nice. No I find shit. the top sheet. Nobody a question, but I'll be hard on you. I won't give it. It's not a gimme. And I said, wow, there's hope. So, right. so you're said, saying there's a chance. <laughs> well, that's a miracle. And I said, why would you, why would you do that to me? He said, well, I like your attitude, kid. We need more guys like you in the Air Force. And he left. And I no, thought, I never forgot that. And I thought, he, and my doctor came running in like, okay, let's get to work. Right. <laughs> but, Geez, oh God, really, I have a plan. I have a, a goal. And I knew I'd, I could never pass this. I didn't, I, I wasn't being unrealistic. But that kind of stuff happened all through my, so it isn't just one man. It, there were so many doctors, nurses, therapists, and behind the scenes that uh, that went to bat for you. And guys at personnel center going like, yeah, you can give them a chance, you know. So right. I took that physical with him one day. It took two days and uh, the little the little bent finger was the big deal because they were going to amputate these two fingers and they didn't. So they had to put a titanium joint in this one. But the fact that it moves meant they couldn't flunk me because I could grip. You yes. can grasp. Nice. You can grasp the throttles. They can't. Hey, they they rebuilt this whole entire hand. They didn't care about that as long as you could. Yeah, I don't have feeling in half my hand. They didn't even ask me that. But as long as you could grip, you're good to go. That's and I uh, great. Next thing I know, I'm, uh, I have two. They says you have 48 hours to report to A7 training, and uh, I think you wow. had six weeks of jet recoil at a, a T38 burst. And uh, I was so terrified. I was underweight. I was I was nervous. I didn't flown in a year and a half, and I I wasn't very good. And I was weak. I was 150 some pounds, but I what, still what, what, uh, Punchy, what's your normal fighting weight before that? Well, before when I the was crash, flying, it was like 178 when I was flying. Okay. And, uh, you know, I was just uh, underweight and a little bit weak yeah. and, and yeah. just terrified. And I was doing pretty bad in the first few weeks. And, uh, but I wanted it so bad that, uh, I had, I had a mission. And then, then as time went on, my body got stronger and stronger. And then, uh, I got through a seven training, got to Myrtle beach. And then we were selected to be in the first A 10 squadron. And by then I was almost coming back to full strength. And then I became, uh, I was on the first A-10 demo. What A10. year is, hey, what year, uh, what year like did 75, you? 75, 76. W yeah. Wait, was that when you got back in the airplane? And, uh, yes, yeah. Okay. And then Airman Magazine did that big story. And then that my life was never my own again after that. Uh, once, you're, once you're in Airman Magazine, the whole world <laughs> in the Air Force knows you. So you'd stop for a gas and go in a cross country and people, the, the uh, trans alert guys would come out and go, Hey, you're the guy in the magazine. And wow. But anyway, so, so, I got back and then I was on the, I got to instruct in A-10s for uh, four years in Tucson and uh, do all the air shows and everything. And 
it, so, I got stronger and stronger. And then finally, about three years after I got out of the hospital, I, I, I didn't even care what I looked like anymore. And I just felt so good because I was healthy. I had zero internal injuries. I didn't have any inhalation burns, nothing. So wow. Awesome. Speaking said, of miracles. Yeah. My doctor said, you're young. You can, you can recover from this. He said, you know, you're, you're going to have to work your arms and hands really a lot therapy to get, to get the strength back because they were terribly burnt, but I didn't lose any fingers and I didn't, I was just lucky at every turn. So it, I became the Air Force safety guy. I went to all the bases, briefing safety talk on my crash and how the equipment worked. And it did, a, it did a lot of good for all the pilots about how your gloves, your boots, your, your Nomex, everything did. Because no one ever came back from that extent of injury to really right. brief them. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I became, I go take your A-10 and go to, go to Dias, go to Randolph, go here in your briefing, everybody all over the Air Force. So little did I know I was becoming so well um, known. I didn't, I didn't, here's the irony of ironies. I'm an introvert. I, I like sitting out in the wilderness and in, in, in watching my birds all day yeah. in the quiet. I'm an introvert. I've never liked being in the spotlight. I'm, so now all of a sudden I'm in the Airman Magazine. I'm in every safety meeting. I'm, they did a film of my safety meeting. Now, you know, so now I hide out. It, you look behind me here. Yeah, this is my little cave. I hide out in what I write my books and I <laughs> right, do my photography because beautiful. I'm not, I don't crave that. Uh, this is really hard. This is hard for you. I, I know this because I raised, I raised three boys that are extroverts. My daughter's an introvert. And, yeah, it's different. And, Yes, it's. I, I thought I thought there was something wrong with us because we. No, we introverts are very talented people. Yes, they're very deep. They they have good thoughts, so they can get through it. And I read a whole book on it in one day, and I thought, oh, that's me. There's hope. You know? read a whole book in one day. Did you catch that? They just don't fit in. You know, you don't fit into your normal uh, activities. Right. The age you're at, but oh, I, I I totally get. It. Can I can I stop you just for a second? I I want to I want to I want to take some notes. A seven. How many hours did you get in the A7? Uh, way too few, man. The greatest little cockpit they ever built in the history of, of jets, man. What a right. what a Cadillac with a with a plane. Was it an accurate bomber? And because uh, oh, accurate is very the stable, wet. right? Are you kidding? You could dri drive nails with this thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> very stable, very yeah. stable Anyone bomber. That ever, everyone that ever flew the A7 will, will say the exact same thing. Yeah, it was what a cockpit. So, uh, how many hours in that? Just give me ball, ballpark. Ballpark. I had maybe three or four hundred hours there, because they we only flew it for a couple of years, and they had all those engine problems with that Allison uh, aluminum engine. Yeah. And then the A ten was come along. They said your squadron is going to be the first A ten. So how many how many hours in the A ten did you get? Uh, the A ten about two thousand two hundred some. I had. Okay. I was Mr. Eight and I was doing all the air shows, going all over uh, briefings. Nice. And you were initial. Was that initial A tens? Initial. I was in the first. I was the eleventh guy in the Air Force to get checked out in the A ten. <laughs> well, I yeah. call that initial cadre. Uh, yeah. I don't my, know about my, you. My commander, <laughs> my commander looked at me one day. He said, "Draw up an air show routine. Just you're good at that stuff. Just, just draw something." <laughs> oh up. man! How about that? Well, that's pretty. <laughs> that what a what a great airplane. You look in an A-10 today, yeah, they got all that magic stuff in there. We had blank panels, not one of – we had nothing in there. Wow. We flew by the seat of your pants, reading a map, low level, yeah. and shooting the gun. There was no GPS, INS, no magic stuff, no wow. uh, 
Those guys yeah. acted as air, forward air controllers airborne for us over in Korea, and yeah. those were talented pilots. Oh those guys gosh. were able to develop a nine-line brief, mark it with a uh, woolly peat, which is a white phosphorus, and, uh, and and then we'd roll in with the heavy bombs. But, oh, my God, that what a, what a tough mission because it's like the A7, single seat, but there was no such thing as a two-seat A10 ever, right? No, we we started in uh, solo on your first flight. It was generally an easy airplane to fly, but it was difficult to employ with uh, underpowered engines, flying low level, and doing everything by the seat of your pants. Yeah, you had you were. We killed a lot of guys in the A10. People don't realize in the early days. Yeah, a lot of guys were killed in the A10. Hit the ground. Well, that's so right. Yeah, it was a low mission too. It wasn't you weren't up in the uh, in the stratosphere at all. Not at all. And, uh, so then I went to, I was supposed to go to a staff job after that. And I fought it uh, right tooth and nail. And, uh, and uh, I said, look, I'll go to fighter lead in there at Holloman. Nobody wants to do that. Now I'll, I'll go there as the first A-10 guy to be, you need, you need some A-10 influence there. Sure. And they said, yeah, that's good. Okay. So they let me do that. And then from there, I was really going to go to a staff job. They said, you're not getting out of that anymore. <laughs> and I said, man, where can I go as a senior officer and not, uh, you know, and keep flying? And the SR-71 was one opportunity. U two, uh, leader of the Thunderbirds. I wasn't going to do that. And uh, the U2 guys wanted me. So the SR guys, gee, with your first pilot time. And uh, yeah, these are the kind of guys we need. So but, at this time, uh, Punchy, you're a lieutenant colonel? No, I'm major. a major. I was major. never a lieutenant colonel. Okay. They weren't. Getting, they were going to make me a lieutenant colonel if I played the game and did the. the sure. I just sure. Sure. Uh, so you weren't I, an academy graduate either. That was another nothing. problem. I was just a guy that wanted to fly, and yep. Uh, yep. So my commander and all <laughs> that's not allowed in the Air Force, is it? <laughs> uh, let's just say I I was lucky to do 20 years in the cockpit, and and I didn't have a wife and kids to put through college, so I could I could not worry about the money and all that stuff. But yeah. I don't know. Life is short. I just I don't regret a minute of it. it, it people always go like, "Well, you should have." Gone back, got that master's degree, or you should have. You should have gone to the staff. You could have been this, could have been that. Yeah, yeah whatever. Could have been dead too in the eight That's right. So That's right. Right. Would have, could have, should have. It's right. not the way you live life. Never. No, you got to. Life is short, and it goes mm-hmm. by. People miss their opportunity, and. Uh, so- so that's actually one of my questions. We've got kind of a transition there. You, you see the SR-71 as a transition opportunity. You go there. Uh, what's it called in the Air Force? It's not the RAG or the FRS. It's the the, the replacement squadron. How, if, how do you if, get if, to RTU. RTU. Replacement The replacement training unit. So the thing is, that airplane is just everything shy of secret. That the fact that it even exists is well, uh, well. Hold on a second. Let's let's back up a second. Okay. Uh, how does that even take place? How do you say? Yeah. I want to throw my name in the hat for that. That's a good question. That's a good question. I'm sitting in my office one day, out of out of ideas, going, "Oh God, I'm the, the staff job's coming. I'm going to <laughs> out of speed, out of ideas. Oh, uh, the the desk, baby. I would get the scissors out now, cut those wrists." <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, um, I, I just happened to, you're not going to believe this. I just happened to have an Airman magazine in my hand. I looked through and it says U2 and SR-71 pilots needed because they really did. They just weren't keeping the flow going. You got to be shitting me. A sack on those airplanes. So it's like the help wanted in the back I of the magazine. The right at the squadron. And I said, hey, this is who I am. And he said, oh, man. 
put your application. We would love to have a guy with your background, but you're intact. You're in tactical air command. They're not letting their guys go to this. And I said, well, man, let's, if you guys want me, we'll figure out a way to, to do this. Let's so I called Langley, the assignment guy. And the Colonel said, if you ever ask that question again, I will personally see that you're court-martialed. You are coming to the staff. Oh. And I thought, well, wrong number there. I'm not talking to that guy anymore. Oops, <laughs> wrong like, number. Wrong number, wrong number. <laughs> Just so happened that the uh, the wing commander was somebody that uh, I played racquetball with. Like, I was the base champ in racquetball. And so he always would say, pull Shul up the afternoon flight. I want to play racquetball. Yeah. And I always I'm made him beat him today. He's, he's, he's beat me seven good. days in a row. Today's my day. Pull yeah. him off the schedule, right? Yeah. And uh, I told him what I wanted to do. He says, you really want to do that? And so then I went to the, see the general. And the general said, he said, why don't you come be be my aide? And I'll take care of you, give you an F-16 after three. I said, yeah, but those three years of being your aide will kill me. You know that. Anyway, uh, we sidestepped. The uh, colonel was going to court-martial me. And, and um, my general <laughs> called the... Uh, Gone, who called the, the general at SAC and said, look, we, if you need fighter guys this bad, why don't we just send one per fiscal year and make a deal that you can, you, someone has to fly that airplane. And everybody agreed on that. So they said, if you can wait six months, we're going to send an F4 guy from Seymour Johnson. And then you're, you're next. You're going to be the first A-10 guy to go to that program. It's a, but then you had to do a week-long interview and everything, pass an astronaut physical and everything. Okay. Week-long so week interview? Week-long? Yeah. Well, you do two flights in a T-38. You do two days of physical at Travis. You do a day of, of getting to watch the airplane launch. Guys suit up and you wet in your pants watching the takeoff and everything. Yeah. Boom, you get a day in the simulator and you get to actually wow. see. Yeah. What and the was coolest the, thing hey, <laughs> the hey, was uh, great. Uh, Punchy, let me ask you, what what were the two flights in the T-38 like? What were they looking for? They just... They're looking to make sure your airmanship. You flew with the the wing or the commander and the the ops officer just to, and they're just real stickler sack guys. You know, I wanted to slap them a couple of them. Well, you got two hundred feet off your altitude. You know, like, oh, yeah. okay, okay, I got it. <laughs> okay, all right. All right. I, I Luckily, understand now. There were some cooler heads in the squadron said, "Hey, the the guys got the you know." 3,000 hours of, of great blind. He said, it's a, it's a fighter cockpit. Come on. Yeah. Come on. So you were getting ready to say the coolest part of it was? Um, I made me forget what I was going to say. Uh, oh, the, uh, sorry. sorry. I'm sorry. The, um, oh, oh, when they gave you the simulator thing, I thought, man, this is top secret. You're letting us, we're applicants, see the simulator? And I, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, this was too cool. <clears throat> they put you in the in the front seat, and you are just overwhelmed with where you are sitting in this big suit. Yeah. And you go, oh. but you don't want to pretend. You want to pretend like you are cool, calm, and can handle this. You don't I've want seen to all this before. Yeah, I could do no, that. You don't want to show signs of. I'm a pilot. Uh, I'm that eight year old kid wetting his pants now, standing by that F one hundred six at the air show. No, you. So you're you're going in. He said, "I'll tell you what. I'm just going to run you up to altitude, about eighty-two thousand feet, and put you at about Mach three, so you don't have to worry about all that. And then just see how how you like that. Like <laughs> I go like, yeah, okay, like it's okay. an everyday. Thing. Sure, sure, yeah, Mach three. Fine. So you're flying, yeah. <laughs> you're flying the jet, and uh, and you're doing all this, and you're watching. You don't even know what half these gauges are. And uh, he says, "How would you? Uh, do you think you could hand fly here at?" Uh, at Mach 3.1, and of course, you—you you, what are you going to say? No, I, I don't think I'm good enough to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. 
Of course. <laughs> well, sure. In your best yeah. Mickey Mouse voice. Sure I can, mister. <laughs> exactly. And he says, uh, how do you think you could fly if the uh, uh, flight controls augmentation system was off? And again, you're not going to say, oh, well, no, I don't think I'll try that. You go, well, sure. So he kept going about five or six questions. Well, the truth is you cannot fly the airplane with the augmentation system off. The airplane does uh, two two loops and then it breaks in half. Gets in a gets in a PIO and then uh, yeah, and so then it just comes apart. It, yes, exactly. Well, induced so, oscillations. You don't know that, so you go, sure, I'll try that. So, yeah, yeah, sure. so the next thing that happens is the jet goes and the simulator goes <laughs> and he and he says, Oh no. Uh, and <laughs> You've broken the sim. And he said those exact words. And oh. you saw your whole career just flash before your eyes. The only sim in the whole Air Force for this jet, you have just broken on a stupid application that you sim. should never even be allowed to touch the part of the airplane. <laughs> because if you will just you get yourself out, if you will just exit the, the sim now. And you're so you're so your flight suit is sticking to the seat. You're so wet with sweat. You didn't want to show them you couldn't do it. But right. you're sitting sideways now as an added insult. Oh, yeah. You got to climb out sideways. You got to climb out. the wrong, And the sergeant sitting at the control panel looks at you with a sneer like, oh, Shaking his head. Right. <laughs> and they right. send you down the hall to go wait in that room. And I'm sitting in that room going, all right, your career's over. You should have never, this was a yeah. bad idea. Bad now idea. You, you, bad idea. The only guy that broke this, the free world simulator of the SR-71. And uh, a little later, they come down and said, uh, you can just, you can just leave now. You know your way out. Just, just <laughs> Oh, geez. And the next day, you're supposed to meet the commander at the officer's club. And hey, I have a drink at everybody, you know, and everything. Okay. You're thinking that so ain't happening. Fast forward now, uh, Two and a half years. I'm uh, I'm SR pilot, and we're on our first uh, deployment to Kadena, and we're flying real missions now. And we're at the officers' club, and the guy who gave me the sim is standing right there, and he's. We always had two crews there, and I said, "Man, I just got to ask you, how did you? How did you? I really appreciate that you you recommended me for this job, but how did you? Would I?" broke the sim and i did he said he laughed he said brian we do that with everybody it's not a nobody can fly the airplane in this, this way we we have it set up oh everyone gosh. breaks the sim he said but he said i recommended you with an extra plus he said you were one of our best candidates i said really he said you never said no i gave you every choice to say i i just don't think i could do this he said it was a stress test it wasn't a flying test it was just <laughs> who was calm under pressure right he said you totally had the attitude i was looking for it had nothing to do with flying. attitude awesome. choices and perspective as you said earlier right i was well, so i i was so amazed to hear that i thought well yeah, I've always had that kind of attitude in life that uh, calm under pressure kind of thing. So, uh, so anyway, can th- I what, didn't break I, this thing. Thank you. It, it, it's a great segue. I want to know. So, uh, how how big is that cockpit? How how large is it? Actually, it's a, it's a good size. I mean, uh, but when you wear the spacesuit, it, it fills it up pretty good. So, so, it's, so yeah, like yeah. compared to an A ten. Uh, Similar. The A-10 was a big cockpit, and it's kind okay. of similar, but okay. maybe not 
Uh, okay. And so uh, um, to tell our listeners that uh, are not familiar with uh, this part of aviation, why on earth are you wearing a spacesuit to fly this jet? Well, you're going above 50,000 feet. You're, yeah. you're living at eight in the 80s. Uh, so if anything happened, you had to eject or anything. The spacesuit is supposed to be your protection. But also in the cockpit, if you lose pressurization, now the cockpit is pressurized 25,000 feet. So it doesn't yeah. have such a differential. But it's still, uh, you're in a hostile environment if anything goes wrong. The you, cockpit you is pressurized right. to 25,000 feet. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Ex- let's, let's, uh, let's touch on that for a second. So for our non-aviator listeners, the normal cockpit pressure, the normal cabin pressurization on an airliner is somewhere around <laughs> 6,000 to 7,000 feet. Yeah. 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 Tops, when you're at 38,000 feet. Yeah, airliner. it tops off at eight thousand or something. Yeah. No, we were at twenty five. It then it started. Then it started uh, going up as you got above. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's why he's wearing a pressure suit. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. If you and if you did lose all the all your pressure, you, you couldn't survive up there for very long without. No. Exactly. And no. Can, can would you mind uh, just just quickly because uh, we've never talked to a U2 pilot yet. So, th- so you're, you're, you're the first uh, high altitude guy we've ever talked to. What are the physiological ramifications of being at altitude and having a depressurization, uh, especially at those altitudes? So, well, your suit, your suit inflates. So they, they do this to you in the sim as in practice and the suit goes to full inflation so now you're like the michelin man you can't hardly <laughs> yes. spin your arms so it, it gives the, the normal pressure on your body but, but if yeah, you yeah. didn't have that what what bad things physiologically would happen to you if you didn't have a pressure suit on well you would you'd freeze and you would have trouble breathing <laughs> yeah you'd expire very quickly every molecule of air in your body would come rushing out yeah <laughs> it would, yes <laughs> It would be it would be a ra- a very rapid de uh, de escalation of life force. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. I mean, it's a it's your it's your survival suit. It, yeah, it's hostile. Totally. There, yeah. It's very hostile environment. That's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. Wow. And That's not cool. only is it a hostile environment, pressure or just physiologically, but you're flying at speeds that are uh, kind of unfathomable for. Uh, you know, the average ground walking person. Well, you're yeah. doing two, a mile every two seconds. <laughs> that is wild. Or faster. Or yeah, faster. Or faster. Well, you did go faster than that, didn't you? I think I read somewhere that at one point um, you uh, you pushed the throttles up to uh, outrun maybe something that was pointed in your direction. And well, you actually right. increased, increased your uh, fuel efficiency by doing so. Actually, the faster you went, the better mileage you, you got. That's very true. Yeah. But uh, we were the guys that did the Libya raid in 86 when Reagan bombed Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. We did the post and pre-strike of reconnaissance. And now, if you recall, you're probably too young to remember. But No, I no, we're not. We are not, my friend. France would was, not let us overfly. So yeah. April 15th, 18, 1986. And, from, and I remember uh, that very, very distinctly. England to the Straits of Gibraltar, yep. into Libya, then and then back. It's a five and a half hour mission. And uh, we're the only crew in history that flew three missions in three days. Uh, the other crew flew two, and the uh, the other crew flew one, and then they rotated out. 
So we were, we had three in three days and they almost went a fourth day. Reagan just called it off and we were so exhausted. I was very fueled. Were you, were you flying out of uh, Kadena at the time? No, England. Uh, Milden Hall, right? Oh, Milden Hall. Not Ben. Okay. Yeah. at Milden Hall. And, uh, we did that. Did that. So we did three in, in three days, which was was. Uh, I know what you, you, uh, you. You guys weren't denied permission to fly over France, were you? Well, yeah, <laughs> everybody was. So the, Margaret Thatcher said, "We'll let the SRs launch against Libya," and that was they. Everyone feared reprisals. Uh, oh. That's why, to this day, one SR is on display at Duxford. Uh, they got one uh, of all the, the thirty museums. They, they got one. Oh, no kidding. That's the one we lay over right there in Cambridge, right by Duxford. And I've seen yeah. that bird. Okay. I didn't realize yeah. that bird was uh, there that day. Okay. You mean it got stuck there? It was awarded because no, it no. got when stuck they, there? When they retired the airplane, they put them all in museums. And oh, okay. okay. And we said, we'd like you, we, we trust that you'll take care of it. And like I thought it. maybe they said, no, nope, you can't have this one back. This oh. No, the guys in Okinawa <laughs> wanted one there too. We, we didn't give them one because we knew they weren't going to take care of it. And they'd, they'd yeah. loot the pieces and rip the stuff off them. And, sure. Yeah. So uh, how many hours in the SR-71 did you get? Only had about five hundred hours. You only flew once or twice a week. Um, so that's, I a had about, that's a horrible yeah. question to ask. Let me let me rephrase this in another I mean, way because <laughs> when you're doing when you're so so five hundred hours in that airplane is really like two thousand hours in a in a normal kind airplane, of. Right? I had about seventy four hot missions, uh, and, and it was almost four years. Good lord! So I mean, let's think about that. Repeat. I mean. You know, you know, we we were flying three quarters of an hour to an hour at a time, right? Maybe, and uh, and doing, uh, you know, well, sometimes we were going fast, but not any, any kind of speed. Well, the good like part that. was uh, when yeah. your days off and you didn't fly the Blackbird, you're flying T-38s a lot of times. I was a T-38 instructor, so I got to fly Chase on the SR lot, and that's how I got a lot of those cool pictures from from my books and all. Not, uh, not uh, like okay. So when there. you say uh, fly Chase, talk talk. Tell about that. What, well, what does we had that a mean? program called Pace Chase. And what that meant was when the SR came back into land and, and, and they got subsonic over Mount Lassen area, you know, the 38 would join up on them and just be there in case there was any emergencies or needed uh, assistance. And you had to you had to get checked out and not to fly too close and where to, where's the danger areas and, and, and the speeds of the airplane. Okay. So I was always checking guys out in Pace Chase and, and there was no nothing illegal or anything about taking pictures from the T-38. And we got some beautiful shots of Mount Lassen. And well, probably most of the uh, SR-71 pictures I've ever seen are probably pictures of yours. Some might be. Lockheed has a lot of a very good collection of pictures because they came out okay. a couple of times and really did a photo shoot of the airplane. Okay. But it was rare to get my my collection is the world's rarest collection of shot because they're just a, a daily sure routine are. things that I wish I'd done more. I wish I'd done more. And and uh, if if you don't mind me asking, um, I I know there uh, the SR seventy one. So the SR seventy one was the uh, recognized version, I guess, and then the A twelve was the CIA version. Is that correct? Yeah, you got to realize the jet was originally an interceptor. So they had big radar on the nose and they okay. carried missiles and everything, the A-11. And, the, and Kelly Johnson sold this to the Air Force and they were going to buy 93 of these airplanes, 93 of them. 
Now, what was the big threat in those days? Well, it was bison bombers coming across the polar ice cap bombing right. America. So everybody right. was afraid of these Russian bombers. So they, you needed interceptors. Okay, that's why every jet they built in the 50s was an interceptor. The F-86D, the Scorpion, you know, and even the SR-71. So all of a sudden, the threat changed. It was ICBMs. And the Air Force said, hey, you know that order of 93 we're going to take? Forget it. We don't want it now. And Kelly was beside himself, and he goes, hey, we, there has to be a need for a Mach 3 airplane that actually works. And we, this is insane. You can't just just cancel the whole thing. And they said, yeah. he said, what if we take a, a put a second seat in, take the radar and weapons out, and we can give you a reconnaissance vehicle that can keep track of those ICs. Boom. The Air Force went, hmm, not a bad idea. Nobody else flies that high and that fast. We don't want another Gary Powers situation. Next thing you know, they said, like give, us, give us uh, 50 of them. <laughs> and uh, no, it wasn't even 50, wow. about 35, 35 yeah. of them. Yeah. So it, they, that, that's why the SR had a life. It would have been in a museum as another experimental. Yeah. But did it not what have was... a kind of a high accident rate? Sorry to br- br- Not uh, really. Added, they built 50 total Blackbirds, and they probably lost nine or 10 of them in, in crashes. But the accident rate per flying hour wasn't that bad. Okay. Know? Okay. What was what was the price tag of a shiny new SR seventy one to yeah, get one off the showroom floor? Yeah, roughly. I don't know, except that it, they told us one time it uh, per hour cost to run it for an hour is a hundred thousand hours. Yeah, I believe well, that. That's a lot of you know. That's a lot. It's a lot of fuel. <laughs> well, that, okay. so yeah, so that brings me to one, of, to one of the questions I wanted to ask. It is that's an expensive number until you figure out all the support that it. Yeah. because right. it wasn't just right. it it's wasn't not, just one crew chief uh no. making sure your ejection seat was good to go and the, fueling the it up heel, the achilles heel of the program was the tanker support so you had okay. five or six tankers dedicated to each mission and they did it for 25 years they were sack tankers they had special fuel for us everything and then eventually mm-hmm. one day in the in the 80s and almost up to 1990 they said we, we just can't afford to keep doing this we need we don't have enough tankers to go around to everybody wow uh, and they said the Cold War is over. We can live without it. But they shouldn't have retired. It should have flown for at least five or six more years. Uh, I, I was shocked when they retired that airplane before. And the U-2 is still flying. You're like, you got to be kidding me, right? You know, the, well, the, the mission. And, but yeah, is very that, expensive in comparison. That right? makes sense. And and you said the special fuel. So what was special about the fuel in yes. that airplane? You could throw a match. Uh, you could throw a lit match into a bucket of this fuel. It would extinguish the match. It had a very low flash point. Uh, so yeah. the, the the fuel was not flammable. So you, we had to have a, a chemical agent, a, a triethyl boring on board that, that kind of created a minor explosion in the back end of the airplane to light off the fuel and, and the explosion. So they, it was just a, an amazing um, that they could yeah. even build an airplane like this in the, in it, the late it, 50s, early 60s. Um, so it's so uh, Kelly Johnson in his career. It, it is. Yeah. It's Gunk Works, which is a great, yeah. uh, great book if nobody's ever read it. it and is. by the way, I, I I want you to pimp your books before we're done because um they're yeah. they're oh, <laughs> awesome read. Let me just say, let me just ask this. Um so you alluded to tanker support and and I know that um because of the metallurgy on the on the airplane, uh, in other words, uh it couldn't be built out of normal uh, uh, metal, uh, aluminum, because of the heat generated from the speeds. 
So they had to build out of a special uh, metal. And from what I understand, uh, you couldn't take a full bag of fuel when you took off because uh, of the seams. The seams weren't. Um, no, no, no. Everybody yeah, gets it wrong. Can and you talk they about get that? It wrong because that old show wings used yeah. to. The guy said it wrong when he said, "As it takes off, it don't." L- L- can you talk about yeah. that, please? Yeah. What happened was the titanium heats up. And when they first started flying the jet, the jet was expanding about four to five inches in flight. It just grows because it's it's so hot. Yeah. Well, it was cracking the titanium. So they went, man, we got to figure out a way. The fuel's not flammable. Let's just build expansion joints into the plane and let it leak when it's subsonic or on the ground. The leakage, <laughs> is, that's, but we don't care about that. It's not that bad. So every picture you see, the jet has a puddle underneath it. It's not flammable or anything, but it's it's a mess. So as you take off, the reason you take off with half a fuel load is simply to, in case you had to abort with 80,000 pounds of gas, that would be really hard. You just take off with 45,000 pounds and you top off and you hit the tanker. It has nothing to do with yeah. the leakage. It's and just so you can take off in a normal manner. What, so what now you the, top off when you hit the tanker. And what now the, as you accelerate through about near Mach 2, the jet seals like Tupperware and you don't lose another drop. There you go. Nice. You only got to get to Mach 2 for that repeat. Yeah, right. That's well, that's why there's a puddle under every marine jet, just to prove that there's still oil and fuel the in it. under but, the marine jet is, is to show all the oil and diesel and uh, fuel. Yeah. And we still have some in it. So. Yeah, it's, it's, if it's not leaking, you've got a problem. I've seen dirtier airplanes. And I went to Red Flag and I parked next to the yeah. marine jets. I mean, the F-4s were like just streaked with hydraulic fluid and, and oil. Right. And Really? You're going to fly that jet? <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. yeah you, you're damn right. Because if it was a clean, I wouldn't fly it. It means, it means uh, it's out. dangerous. That's it's right. It's not leaking anymore. So, yeah. So it, can you tell me a little more about some of the aerodynamics in there? Because I know there was some amazing stuff going on uh, in that in that engine. It, because at, cer- at a certain point, uh, they couldn't slow down the air uh, enough to hit the compressor, right? Is that – well, how do you say that? The, the real headache for the pilot is to learn this new thing where the spikes of the, of the inlets are moving mm-hmm. aft as the jet accelerates. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something new you never had to work in other jets and all. And right. you have to, now, the big, in simple terms, the big issue is what if one spike gets further back than the other and you have this disparity? What happens? The Asymmetric. Nose of the jet, that's right. You have a yaw moment. And at that speed, the yaw moment equates into hydroplaning and you lose the whole jet. There's not a piece big enough to identify. And that's exactly how they lost several jets in the early days which is now guess what kind of computers they had in the airport which just equates to not not finding the pilot in pieces because i mean yeah so there was no computers in the airplane in the early days or anything so eventually in the 80s they put computers in to monitor the position of the spike so that if one moved too far aft the other one would sympathetically abort with it and it had to move forward and recapture the shockwave. Well, it cost you fuel. It was drag. It was terrible. But you weren't losing the jet. Right. So as a pilot, you, <laughs> you had to monitor <laughs> that very uh, closely and carefully. And then once you got to a certain point that the spikes were 24 inches full aft, then you were just like a bullet except faster. And then you didn't have that problem <laughs> because they were just aft. <laughs> so so uh, as faster, far as the yes. throttle goes, I mean, as far as the pilot stuff, did you You're working the throttle all the time? But I mean, but did the did the did the throttle control the the position of the, oh, the the speed? It was all speed controlled, one and five eighths of an inch per tenth of Mach number, 
after 1.4 miles. These are numbers you will never forget the rest of your life. Yeah, and I bet. Then you're on a schedule. They were on a schedule yeah. for temperature, altitude, fuel, everything. So the sure. jet acted like a ramjet, but it wasn't. It was a turbojet that got all this free air, bypassing the, the engine, and dumping. That's why the faster you went, the more free thrust you got. That's amazing. Hey, uh, and that's just a history major. And, that's and, about as much as yeah, I can tell. Listen, well, Ray, well, but hold on. So, but let me finish that that thought. So, I'm trying to do it for people that that don't understand ramjet, turbojet, that sort of thing. So, you've got all this air, and you're bypassing your compressors and your turbines, and you're throwing it right into the afterburner section. Right into the afterburn section. Okay, and then the fuel and the, and the fire mix, and it, it's almost like rocket thrust at that point, right? It'll sit up there for an hour and a half, and you, you, the ceramic tile, and then it never overheats, never gets hot. And they found the one J-58 Pratt & Whitney that would do it. The Navy didn't want it anymore, and uh, it, <laughs> Kelly made it work, and it was just a, a match made in heaven, that's the J-58 SR. Yeah, that's just... I'm amazed to this day, looking back at that technology, that oh. they could, with a slide rule, figure out some of the delicacies of that airplane that are so precise. And it worked right? for a quarter of a century. I right? mean, in 1990, it's still, in 1970. Well, Supercomputers weren't even invented yet. It How said, did they know every, this? Every speed and altitude record. And as we're sitting here today, in it 2023, holds. it still holds every record. Yeah. That's hey, saying something. Punchy, yeah. you you said this one time, I, and I in a marine, I, I I was a little slow. Can you tell me this again? When you're doing when you're doing normal speed in an SR seventy one miles a minute, are you clicking off? Well, you're doing about thirty two miles a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or faster if they're shooting at you. <laughs> like you said, yeah. Fig, it like just like a bullet, only faster. So. Huh. No, no, you're not kidding. Rifle, I, I'm sorry, but that just makes me still, laugh every time I, I hear that. hunting rifle is 3,100 feet per second. Yeah. Uh, look at 30 out six. We're at 3,200 feet per second. No problem. So, so that, but that 3,100 feet per second, that's coming out of the muzzle. It slows down rapidly, rapidly. Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're, you're cruising doing, at that for you're hours. You're cruising at that. <laughs> oh my! We were not only cruising; it was just loving it at that altitude. It flew better. It, it just, it just knew where it was. Yeah, that's just, that's awesome. But the the, the idea that they came up with to you know throw a spike in the intake that that uh, screws with the shock wave to so to that you aren't damaging the engine and yeah. primitive technology make it work. The best analogy I have come up with, and I use this in my talks. I said, imagine if you want to understand how that technology should have never been able to go all the way through the 90s and be that great. Imagine if you go to the Indianapolis 500 race this year. You know, they always have a pace car with some, sure. some sure. Old, old, old car and you go, that's really cool. And you, let's say you have a 57 Chevy in front of the pack of all those, those highly charged uh, ethanol fuel or uh, dual fuel drag racing aer uh, aerodynamic uh, cars that they they race in Indy. and when they come around and the checker flag goes down the pace car eases off the track but no let's say that 57 chevy stays on the track and everyone goes oh the poor fool he's just gonna be overrun and let's say the 57 chevy wins the indy that year that's yeah. the equivalent of what this jet did for 25 years built with a slide roll that the greatest MIGs that they threw at us with the Zoom Climb and MIG-25 Fox right. could yeah. even get it. Not one, right. 
Not one was ever shot down. So uh, that, which, that which brings me to the next question. And and uh, did did you ever were you ever flying a mission where uh, you had a Sam or you had a Mig coming at you and you're like, yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. no. Can you yeah. talk about that? We used to see the contrail, frozen contrails up over the Arctic Circle. The some of the MIGs coming coming out and they try to zoom climb and then their their white contrails would get all puffy and 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 spark. <laughs> then you'd realize they're out of gas and ideas and they're falling out of the sky, hustling to get back home in that frigid uh, winter air. <laughs> you got four inches of throttle left at a nineteen <laughs> Chevy, and you're going like, "Geez, John Wayne would have loved this airplane." It's like they can't even touch it. Yeah. And you, you it, that's how great the airplane was. So did, uh, did you ever feel naked? Uh, uh, yeah, over ever? Libya, over Libya, when the whole world was watching and the Sixth Fleet was in the med and it, everyone was holding their breath, Gaddafi fired two missiles at us. And uh, Walt said, uh, we're, we're trying to hit the turn at uh, Benghazi and uh, we've got like uh, 14 seconds to the turn. And we got to get to the turn to get the shots. The I think I read on. this before, but yeah, Walt continue. goes, uh, I got a launch signal. We didn't get too excited. He says, I got a confirmed launch. Then we got excited. So we figured that missile is going to take 20, 25 seconds to get to us. We got 14 seconds to the turn. Yeah, we got 10 seconds to spare. Max burner, hit the turn. As soon as you turn, that missile has to lead you by 32 miles. It has to recompute a lead point now, and it, it falls back down into their, their own town. So we made that turn and he got out with med. My hand was still pretty hyper there, uh, adrenaline flowing. I had my hand still up in the forward position. He said, I think you can pull it back now. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of exceeded a lot of the numbers you're not supposed to. But what I did was I went to idle over Sicily. And our tanker was waiting for us at the Straits of Gibraltar. You look on a map and we never touched the throttles once from there all the way to the tank. Just as we pulled up to the KC-10, that's the first time I touched the throttles again. And that jet just, I've never seen that. an airplane, a thoroughbred, just want to run. And it was just like the movie Seabiscuit where the guy says, yeah, okay, now. just wants and to go. The horse would know when to go. This jet go. knew where it was and, and it knew when to go. Yeah, that didn't jet just want to slow down. Go. I came out of burner, I pulled it back, and the Mach number didn't even, it just held it right there for a few seconds. I thought, oh. She just wants to run, buddy. It did. It wanted to run. It did. And we love that jet because it got us back. So uh, uh, as a pilot, controls wise. um, Very honest flying jet. It was a very stable. What was uh, takeoff rotation and landing uh, like? Well, you rotate, I think, around 210, lift off at 220. The landing around 190. Attitude. what, What kind of attitude are we talking yeah, well, uh, just enough so you can't see the runway. <laughs> <laughs> right <Okay>. on. <laughs> so, Try that uh, at night in the weather in England, bub. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. So we're talking what a one and a half, two degrees before you lift off and the kind of same kind of landing attitude type thing? Yeah, you're coming in, but it's got such a great ground effect with that big delta wing that oh, yeah. it landed pretty nice usually. Uh, uh, but you're coming across the fence usually close to 190, you know. Did you have to uh, worry about um, asymmetrical thrust, uh, lose like a losing engine on takeoff kind of performance? Yeah, if you thing? lost an engine on takeoff, you don't push the other one to max like you do in every other plane. You pull it out of burner so that you don't <laughs> touch roll right on the run. Yeah. Uh, you was, do that in the sim a few times and you go, whoa. That's... What, was it okay on one engine on at takeoff yeah. weight normally? 
Well, yeah, you didn't want to do that, but yeah. Yeah, you're, you're I mean, like, I mean, you, you can hold that rudder. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, so you said about 195 was a ref coming across the fence uh, on landing. That's 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 pretty. Fast. That's, that's impressive. Touchdown around 165. Yeah, big yeah. yeah. drag shoot, slow you down. And uh, brakes or brakes were brakes good on that plane. Drag shoot was great. Brakes were good. Everything it was it was like a big F one hundred six, and it was a big Century Series, you know, airplane. Okay, just was the biggest thing I ever flew. It was big, one hundred seven feet long. That's big. Yeah, yeah that's long. Yeah. She's. I've long. gotten them next to the one in the Udvar Hagee Museum there in Washington D.C. area, out near good. Dulles, and yeah. gorgeous bird though. Well, and, you know, you the, the thing is, that's the other thing that's about it. You know, you look at the U two, and you kind of go. Well, that's neat. It had, you know, it had its ability to do some pretty unique stuff. Yeah. Well, you kind of go, eh, okay, it looks like a great big glider. This thing looks like something out of, you know, 2050. It looks like you know, a, I, a, a dart. One of, the things I'm, one of the things I'm most proud of is when I wrote my second book, The Untouchables, I got to interview some of the Lockheed guys that were on this airplane for, for most of their career, and they never had a voice. No one ever got told okay. what they do and could put them in a book. And they told their families, I'm sorry, I can't talk about it. Well, I got to know these guys. They used to stand around in the hangar in their civvies. And uh, you would say, who are those guys? Don't ask. They, they, they know the airplane. If you have a problem, you know, tell. So when don't, it was all shut down, it was all declassified. I went to the homes of these guys and dinner with them and I interviewed and they said, gosh, no one's ever asked us. It's just so great that you're including our little interview in your book. And they were so happy to talk. Well, yeah. there was one guy, he was about 80, 82, and he was all white hair, looked like a little professor, and his wife was there with her gray hair, and, and uh, we, we were sitting down in their, in their living room, and I said, okay, I got asked this question I've always wanted to ask. You, you, you designed and invented a, a jet that, that didn't even look like it belonged in the same era that you, you built it in. And there had to come a day when the very first one came off the assembly line. And you saw it for the first time. You saw the Star Wars looking thing when you didn't even have Star Wars yet. Right. What was that like right. as, a, as a lucky guy that you he did the rudder? He did the whole rudder section. He said, <laughs> I said, what was that like when you saw the first one, number one, come off the assembly line and it would look like nothing else we had ever, ever done? And the guy started coughing and wheezing. I thought he was having a stroke. And, and his wife, uh, I said, is he okay? <laughs> she said, oh, he'll be okay. He gets very emotional about this. I go, what? And so finally he recovered himself. He said, it was the greatest day of my life. He said, I worked on the Stealth Fighter. I worked on the YouTube. But this, what we did, we knew we had done something special. He said, it was he said, you, you're the first person that's ever asked me that. He said, it was the greatest day of my life. And I thought, that's the answer I wanted to hear. That I, I would there have you thought, go. Yeah. yeah. Not yeah. like, yeah, well, we just built another airplane. Because it didn't look like another uh, airplane. I mean, if that, I'm telling you, if that jet were designed today in 2023, people would look at it and go, whoa, that's yeah. That's sharp. That's advanced. Well, that's all those guys amazing. are dead and gone now. All the all yeah. the twenty three guys in that book that I interviewed, they had, oh. were so passionate about the airplane, more so than the pilots. And they're all dead and gone, and they never mm. ha ever had a, a voice to tell their story anywhere else. So, so that so book is the Untouchables, it's and it's book. available on. Uh, uh, Punchy, say, say it again. I'm sorry. So, oh, yeah. so go ahead, Punchy. 
Sleddriver.com. Sled Sleddriver.com. Okay. Is that is that your website? Yeah, that's where they can order the books. So. Uh, can I ask? Um, and I don't know if this is a number that you know. Just get me close, maybe get us close. How many? How many guys flew the SR seventy one? Ninety. Nine zero. Yep. Ninety. Wow. <laughs> And we've had about 15 of them die now. We, we're, we've lost it, guys. 90 so. pilots. So, so uh, you know, you're uh, kind of unique in, in the world of aviation. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, sir, but you are very unique. How so? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there's there's 89 other guys just like you, but other okay, than that. Okay, <laughs> there's only 89 other Wait, hey, no, can I? But the, no, there's, you know, that's the I thing, though, is that really, your background I, and I everything always, you've done yeah. has, has put you, no, you you are. No, I always say unique. I appreciated it more than the other 89 just because of uh, where I'd come <laughs> yes. from. That journey, but, that long journey. Oh, my gosh. Uh, was, was one that when I, maybe that's why I was carrying a camera around. People thought I was already planning and doing, but no, I, I just loved the fact that I was near this airplane and I liked photography. And I, I'm so glad that it was the, the, the one guy that appreciated it beyond words was the one guy that took pictures with pictures, it and wrote about yes. it in a, in a loving uh, way in the book. My yeah. books aren't technical books. I, I didn't want yeah. them to be. I wanted a, the, the average air show fan that says, what was that like to fly the plane to have a taste of, uh, of that? Can I, uh, can I back way up, way up? Uh, I took a note earlier in our conversation. You made a note to Blue Angels and Thunderbirds. Tell me about that. Blue Angels and Thunderbirds. What was your experience? Well, when I got out of the Air Force, I thought I was going to be like a photojournalist aviation guy because I knew everybody then and I could get backseat rides and do flights. And I hooked up with this company, Mach 1, that uh, did calendars and all. So I was getting backseat rides all over the country in in jets and on. And the one thing when I was a kid, that I always wanted to do, that I, I really had this idea uh, when I was a young lieutenant even, I thought no one's done really good books other than Martin Caden did a good book on the Thunderbirds in the 50s and 60s. But no one's done good books on the airshow teams, two teams that affected my young life a lot going to right. those airports. So I thought <laughs> I had this wild idea. And this goes back to my theory of uh, attitude and, and perspective and choices. And I called up the uh, Thunderbirds. I said, I would like to fly in the backseat uh, during your winter training season to document what has to be one of the hardest training of three months in history that no one really knows about or understands how difficult to put that air show routine together. And I'd like to do a nice book with the photographs and all. And they said, well, we don't, we don't let people fly with us during winter training season. Forget that. So I'm out in an air show one day signing my SR-71 books and the leader of the Thunderbirds in his red flight suit comes by and goes, hey, my daughter bought me your book on the SR and I love it. Can you do something like that for us? And I said, sir, I've been asking for a year. No one will say yes. No one will let me do it. He said, I'll make that happen. And again, in life, it's always it takes one guy to open the door. Right. So I spent the whole winter training season with the Thunderbirds. Uh, didn't get to fly quite as much as I would have liked to, but they had some bad weather issues and, and airplane issues going on. So, okay, the Thunderbird book came out and it was really well received. We sold out of them and the team really liked it. And they made me an honorary Thunderbird. I was so proud of that. I, besides being an Eagle Scout and a, and a 
growing up as a Marine kid, I, I'm an honorary Thunderbird. I thought that's nice. pretty cool. So I get pretty confident now. And <laughs> um, about three or four years after I retired, I call up the Blue Angels and said, I have a great idea. You're going to turn 50 years old in 96 and you don't have a good book uh, to show for it. I'm the guy. I don't throw up in the cockpit. I'm one of you. I'm a pilot. And I, I'm better at my photography now. And I want to fly the entire air show season with you. Well, imagine what a ridiculous question that would be. They they hung up on me. Yeah. I made 400 phone calls. Uh, everyone was met with, uh, what are you kidding? Got in my car, drove to El Centro, uh, where they do their winter training season. Right, yes. Lettuce field on the Mexico, Canada, or uh, California. Very familiar, very familiar. Went down there, and there's no one there. I'm the only truck in the parking lot, and six blue <laughs> jets land. And here comes the public affairs officer running out of the shack going, who are you? What are you doing here? And And then he goes, I know you. You're the guy on the phone. You're the guy that keeps calling here. And then I thought the next sentence was going to be arrest him immediately. And he said, damn, you showed up. He said, we have athletes, senators, famous movie stars. Everybody wants something from us and no one gives anything back. You're the first guy who said you wanted to do a book for us. He said, I'll give you 10 minutes of my time. When his office, I had my Thunderbird book. <laughs> okay. And I said, uh, listen. do for you. This could be a two book set. It's it just is so great. And he's thumbing through my Thunderbird book while I'm talking. I think he's not even listening to me. And this no, is like the picture. Just the greatest photo opportunity of your life. And, and you're wishing he would just listen to what you're saying. And he goes, You can stop talking now. You've got a big fat error in your book. What? Greatest uh, greatest uh, air show. Yeah. Yeah, Team, in right? one of the pictures, it said, the, the formation doesn't get any tighter than this. <laughs> and he said, and then I'll never forget the words that he said to me. He said, you obviously have not flown with the United States Naval Demonstration Team. <laughs> and I thought, is this like cease and desist? What, what did I say? Exactly. <laughs> we can and, change uh, this. <laughs> and I said, the light bulb came on over my head. And in that two seconds, my entire life was changed. I said, if you can make this project happen, we could set the record straight. <laughs> and right, there was a right. moment of silence, like, you know, when you go into burner in a Century Series jet, there's this, this little tenth of a second that was nothing, well, the fuel dumps into the burner second before it lights off, that we were in that little moment. You're, and he said, <laughs> how soon can you get here and, uh, and get all your gear here? And I said, well, I'll be here tomorrow if that's what it takes. I am the only guy in history. And this will never be done again. We broke every rule in the Department of oh Defense. And I flew with the team for an entire year. In 1996? Yeah, Did with it. Lawman. Um, no. I, uh, yeah, Lawman was on the team. Yeah, no, absolutely. Is, was Lawman? Yeah, was that name? yeah. Lawman was 95, 96. Dino, Snooze, and Lawman. 96, the, you're right. You're right. That's the, so you the funny. Oh, I was there in 94. I, yeah, I had to do it before they turned 50. So, so you were in 94. Oh, that and, was that was Lawman's first year. Yeah, his first year because he was okay. doing crap, and they were giving him crap every day at the at the debris. And he took it so well; he was so good. And you Dino know, goes, "Hey, hey, Lawman, did you see that big blue thing next next to your jet? Yeah, that was me. Don't hit me, Lawman. It was great. It was the greatest year a photo guy, a photographer, a journalist could ever wish to have." What is that book called? That is called. Uh, 
Blue Angels, A Portrait of Gold. It's out of print. We sold them all so fast and we have to redo it because the, the book is done with film. And we got to di- digitize the, the whole thing. So, so, you, so you can't get it right now. You can't be got. No, you can't. They're out of print. We have. I have like one le- left. I can. I can show you. It's on the floor here. Here, hold on. Can yeah. I come? Can I come to your house and get it? Right. Exactly. That's because I was going to ask him what, what what's going to take to get a, a set of all his books. We, we um, got to do. Yeah. Hey, how about that lawman? Lawman's yeah. on. We got lawman yeah. on print. There it is. Yeah. That's gorgeous. That's lawman's left wing tip right there, right there yep. in the top of the. Uh, Oh my man was a great guy. It, and all of them were great guys, but I'll tell you a little secret. The first, the, the cover shot of the book, I shot, mm-hmm. I shot 80,000 pictures that year. Yeah. This was the first roll of 36 in Bend, Oregon. The first show they let me fly that ended up being the cover shot was probably picture number 22. I took of the whole year. Unbelievable. Wow. Beautiful book. We got, Got the whole uh, here's the whole team marching down. <laughs> hey, so was Longman out of step? <laughs> so, hey, That's so Punchy, uh, uh, since you got to fly with both the Thunderbirds and the and the Blue Angels, uh, and and I I don't want you to pull any punches. They're gonna say who's best. I know. No, I, I don't want to say who's best. Who who flew a tighter formation? Well, you know, it's a good question, and you may not like the answer, but it has to. You have to answer with a caveat: is that they fly a different kind of diamond formation. If you, it, the Navy flies a deep stack. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So when they turn, it looks like they're closer. If I put my hands behind the other one, sure. But if the Na- the Air Force flies a, a shallow stack, which is a little more difficult sometimes, especially for number four. It's a little it's a little tougher because you're closer to the jet wash. I'm not gonna say the, the Thunderbirds are better because they fly a harder formation. I'm gonna say they fly each fly just a little bit different kind of formation. When they gave me the stick one day at practice, he said, I want you to feel the pressure on the stick so you can write about it good. And so I uh, it was uh, it's all six airplanes in the Delta. They did some mm-hmm. Uh, maneuvers. He said, hey, you're, you're pretty good. I said, Well, yeah, I did it for 20 years. I hope I can still do it, but I was really nervous and he said, why are you why are you flying up so high? He said, because that's where you're supposed to fly in formation. He said, no, no, we fly, we fly down here. So when you when you turn, it looks yeah, like step down. Yeah. So from yeah, the from it. the from the field of view of the of the spectator, it looks exactly. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think the Thunderbirds fly some more pre- precise and difficult things that you don't appreciate as as a spectator. The blues have more showmanship and they know how to impress the crowd more i think uh he uh, uh, let me ask you this um uh, be, being in uh, being in uh, around both of those teams uh both of those guys i know i know from personal experience that they're quality individuals and you probably can't if you could change the shirt on on the individual you probably wouldn't know what service they were in um is there a uh, uh, actually I, I know the answer to this question so I'm going to rephrase it if if you were to throw a dart in a room and hit a blue angel or a or a or a, or a thunderbird guy who would be closer to the bar <laughs> <laughs> you know I didn't I didn't see a lot of that on either team I I, I thought I'd see a little more uh, 
partying and and uh, reception stuff. No, no, they are in yeah. the bed early. That's They're good. at the weight room at 0800. Uh, I I'm not saying I was disappointed. I I was impressed that they were so dedicated and serious about their job. And when I saw what the job entailed and rode along with them, I go, holy mother of God, this is not fun flying at all. It's hurt. It, 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 lawman related that to us. He said, you yes. know, that was his first day on the on the team. Dino asked him, what, what's the best part or the worst part of being a Blue Angel? And he's like, you know, you're traveling a lot. He couldn't come up with the answer. He goes, no, it's the flying. Yes. The, the, you are going to regret coming to work to fly this airplane. It is and so uh, hard, and intense. I have such respect for those guys. I mean, I've I taught this stuff for years. I was good at it, but, man, that's Very just, stressful. That is the ultimate. Very stressful. It's highly stressful. It was stressful yeah. sitting along watching it. <laughs> I, I cannot imagine. It must have been just as exhausting, you know, riding without having to be it the was, one holding, holding the jet in, in position. Film, I was changing roles of 36, everything, but. I tell people in my talks, I am uh, the luckiest guy you will ever see at a podium because not only I got to fly the world's fastest jet, to fly with both teams, something no one else has ever gotten to do that no, they will never do that again. No. And to have that opportunity to just see it and get to to smell it and breathe it and touch it and and do books about it. I'm so lucky that I got to do all those things um, as a guy that was told your flying days are over. Crazy. even more so truly unique and and very uh so can can i um i you are a very humble man Uh, you're a very humble aviator you have to admit i'm a fortunate guy and and i uh i before i before i ask you this question i just want to say i'm very humbled and very honored to talk to you and hear all your stories and i i really truly feel like i am in the uh presence of royalty a sky god. Aviation royalty. <laughs> sky god. There we go. <laughs> well, that might be a title. Sky god. No, we won't do that to you. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question, and if you don't want to answer it, it's okay. Uh, but can you can you tell our listeners what Air Force uh, accommodation or medals that you were awarded throughout your career? Oh, uh, that, I don't even remember half of it. Think, I think the meritorious service was probably one of the higher ones and a bunch of air medals and uh there was a couple other bunch I, of air medals just, hold on a second let's talk about that <laughs> a bunch of air medals listen ladies and gentlemen you don't get air medals just for being a pilot for flying airplanes you, you don't yeah. get air medals for that well I'm, i looked at my mess dress the other day because i actually have an opportunity to uh do something really special at the end of this year i'm not going to tell you but it's just too amazing uh, where whoa, whoa, whoa. That's just it. mean. That's just mean <laughs> to say that, Punchy. What a tease! Well, um, and I may have to wear my mess dress, which I haven't worn in thirty years, and also I'm going to get a new one. Obviously, I won't fit in the program. But I was you probably at, fit right into that next. I was battle. looking at the uh, all the um, medals and, and things, and on some I just don't even recognize, but I know that they were like meritorious service or. Joint sure. joint uh, service accommodations, things like that. We did some odd oddball stuff, and uh, uh, so no, I, I didn't. I didn't do any, you know, distinguished flying cross or medal of honors or any any of those. I've tried to tell people I'm not a hero. No, a but sur- you have a very distinguished career, sir. Very distinguished. You could call it many things. I would say a very fortunate, lucky, and blessed. A career to get to do all the things they didn't fly for 20 years and then go fly with the teams and 
survive the A10 when we're killing guys every week and and just just to survive the hospital. Uh, so that's yes. lucky to be. That's not distinguished. That's I had perseverance. I I kept calling the Blues four hundred times till they finally relented and and they're glad they did they loved the book and they they yeah. said it really we did something good for us and guess what there hasn't been a good book on the blues in the in since then they never had a good book. or the thunderbirds i really yeah so i consider i never think a great or distinguished or heroic or uh, infamous i think really blessed and fortunate my, that my distinctly special marine personality got me through uh, carried me through all of the things that I've gotten to do. Uh, and I proved my theory that you can, you can do more than you think you can do. And, uh, I tell people you can go weeks without food, days without water, even a few minutes without oxygen, but the minute second you lose hope, you're, you're done. So you just don't give wow. up. And that's, that's my motto. It's, it's very profound. And it's Indeed. true. It's and I've lived it, and I don't even know how I did all the things we're talking about here today. That's why I find it even hard to describe. I do. I know exactly how you did it because that was your ordained. It was uh, path. My, it was. I was the marine kid that was going to be able to. to yes, do it. sir. That's I mean, how I remember it. my my high school coach town. I had a red cap with an M on it because my dad got it for me at the base, and we were <laughs> when we were practicing, we got to wear our own caps and. He said, yeah, yeah, I got that Marine kid at third base. He's kind of salty. He's kind of salty, the Marine kid, you know. He just, <laughs> and I go, what do you mean by that? I'm a nice guy. I'm a, you know. I didn't get into a lot of fights or trouble. I was on the dean's list. I was an honor <laughs> student. I, I liked school. I wasn't a – but I would say things sometimes that um, they didn't want to hear. And uh, I had a commander once tell me, he says, you're my best instructor. I'll leave you in the cockpit till the day you retire, but I will not, I will never promote you because you, you are a loose cannon. And I thought that's a compliment. I've heard that before. Repeat. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, I'll uh, take it. I was lucky to get through a career without being court-martialed half the time and doing things I said or did. But, uh, but my dad taught, taught me some great, uh, valuable lessons and everything. And, uh, he was a great man. And, uh, and my mom was right when she said, uh, you weren't, you didn't pull the short straw. It wasn't unlucky. You were chosen. You chosen for this mission because you were the guy that would survive it and then turn it into something positive. And I said, wow, okay. Well, I hope I can see that someday. <laughs> right. And, I did, yeah. and now you do, but yeah, still that's. Lunchy, wow. I, I got to tell you, I've. I'm in. I'm just sitting here. I, I'm kind of out of questions. Yeah. Uh, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm unprepared. Yeah. yeah so uh, let me uh, let me take it then, Fig, because I'd I'd like to uh, chat about. Uh, uh, I know on Facebook it's Brian Schul Photography. That's uh, Brian B R I A N Schul S H U L Photography. Uh, find that page, and you will see some of the most stunning nature photos. That's been my most fun. My most fun thing now is doing my bird uh, photography, and people say, "How did you get into doing bird photography?" It's very well, I used simple. to fly this airplane that had a long-range camera. <laughs> you know, birds are like airplanes to me, and they're just way more interesting and fascinating, and have a personality. And once you you understand flight and you appreciate flight, when you watch birds, you just don't ever watch them the same anymore. Oh, that's right. They 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 do everything that you wish you could do in an airplane. I wish I was a, a Harrier uh, 
when I watch them fly the field out there, they are the they they kill with elegance. I mean, they are just yes. impressive flyers. Yeah. yeah, when when you see birds of prey uh, in action, it's 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 truly. Uh, if you're an aviator, you are in awe at their at their skill. You I've see, seen Harriers uh, stop on a dime, do a hammerhead stall, and roll down and catch that mouse with all within a just a heartbeat. You go, how'd you do that? Well, they they pulled one wing in and put left one out. <laughs> I tell you, that is incredible. It. I'll tell I, you the other bird that's interesting, and and I didn't see any there, but it, I don't think you're in the area where you can. The, the one of the more fascinating aviators to me is, is the pelicans to watch those guys use ground oh, effect. Oh no, I've got tons of pelicans. Do you? Okay, I hadn't seen this. Pelican those. is the very first bird I started with that I had no intention of being a bird photographer, and mm-hmm. I bought this new lens that I was going to shoot air shows with. And I was uh, visiting my parents in St. Pete where they lived, and what's in St. Pete is the pelican. Oh, yeah. So I, I needed something to practice with my new lens. And I went down to the pier and I thought, these dumpy, stupid looking birds, they're slow right. enough. Up. I'll just, uh, who would, these birds are just ridiculous. So I started shooting them to practice focusing on. I fell in love with them. They were such good flyers and such incredible. Oh my gosh. They come right down the to, pier. Yeah. Right. To watch them the dip their wingtips in the water as they fly and then to dive in and get fish. and. Oh. I, I, I met a pelican beak to beak one day on the, I'm leaning <laughs> off of the railing of the pier. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh, head on shot. This is good. This is good. And I thought he'll, he'll move at the last minute. He'll turn away. No, no, that's his pier. He didn't turn away and his head just missed smacking me in the nose and his wing. Just give me a wet wipe right across the, I thought, <laughs> how cool is that? <laughs> that was so cool. No, he's not gonna move for you, dumb. Yeah, I'm not moving for you, Prowl, you yeah. amateur. I'm a professional here. I got right? into my hawks and harriers and uh, and uh, eagles and stuff, but now I'm doing series on uh, the smaller birds, which are fascinating. It's just a great thing to do in your retired uh, life. It, it, you can do photography. You know, That's forever. awesome, Punchy. I, I like uh, being out in nature. Yeah. yeah, it is great stuff. As the introvert that I am, I I like being away from the crowds. uh, Right. I I just want to tell you how, what a great, what a great pleasure it was to listen to your stories. I I wanted to make it, do some contribution to your show that was positive. Oh, are you kidding me? It's, it's, this is right up there. This is awesome. This is one of the greats. This is one of the greats. It's a first. We've never had an SR 71 pilot on. And we probably, because there's only 89 left to go, we probably won't get one. Uh, (laughs) Well, unless unless you can give us a reference, uh, we, (laughs) we, we probably won't get one. And and thank you for your service. Uh, thank Indeed. you for your service in Vietnam, and thank All you for uh, thank you for your service to our country. All voluntary. I didn't want anyone taking my seat. That was, uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, quite frankly, uh, not being an Air Force Academy or an RTC guy, getting a pilot slot in the Air Force is kind of a uh, kind of a big deal. So uh, you know, I'll tell you one of the great quotes. I remember so many great quotes in my career, and and one was when I went to the recruiter right after college. And I said, okay, you can have me now. You've been sending me all these stupid uh, drafting notices. And I kept telling you I was going to join and everything. So here I am. I want to go to pilot training. And he says, uh, how many hours flying do you have? I said, none. He says, did you have RTC? I said, no, I didn't even do RTC. <laughs> you have a degree in aerospace. And I said, no, I'm a history major. <laughs> and I got a degree in anthropology. Here, let's hear it for history and majors. He looked at me and he said, what makes you think 
we're going to waste all our money training you how to, how to fly. And I looked at him, I said, because I want it more than the other guys. And I actually said that. Right on. And he just looked at me like, you know, the same thing the doctor said to me in the hospital. He says, I like your attitude. Yeah, he says, I like your gonna, attitude. I'm going to let you go. You might you might not make it, but you I like your attitude. I like your attitude. That's how yeah. my whole life was. Uh, and I talk a lot about attitude in my talks today because I'm a living proof that it uh, – it, 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 it's a bigger factor in people's uh, well-being than uh, we may think sometimes. No, I, I think you're spot on on that. I really do. You guys started your radio show. You didn't yeah. You didn't start with the idea that, well, it's probably a fail. No, you probably you said right. this could be something good. We're going to make this work. We got to get the great aviation raconteurs on tape, yeah, get so their stories down. Today, how well all your equipment worked at the start of the show. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Ouch. I'll take that. <laughs> you no, know, the, the funny thing is, is it was about a year ago today. Well, it was yeah. in April. It was the end of April that uh, Repeat and I were at a Harrier anniversary, 50, 50th Harrier anniversary. Oh. And um, yeah, 50 years of the Harrier in the Marine Corps. And uh, we, we, we started talking and I, I came to the... Uh, I came to the Harrier reunion with a digital recorder because I wanted to record some stories because I thought I wanted to make a podcast, not knowing how I was going to do it. Uh, but repeat uh, is the guy. And he said, hey, uh, it, it, so we, we started talking. The next thing you know, here we are. We're, we're so we're, here we we're are a year later, a year 54 later. shows in and. Maybe fifty-five. I've lost track of the number. Life is what you make it. it it's really it, life is what you make it. Once you get your hand on the stick and throttles and all the, but it, it you know, you know, uh, Pug, uh, Punchy, it's it's. Uh, I I just appreciate you coming on and talking to us because you do this all the time, and you probably. I I hope you don't feel like you're uh, you're you're uh, you're you're talking to a broken record. Uh, I just really, really, I just want to uh, express the fact that how much I, we both right. appreciate you uh, sharing your stories. That's exactly right. And if, if I don't share the story in a positive way, then all that I went through didn't didn't have any real value. It's like it's my way of uh, making it, of some value. All that stuff that uh, at the time you just thought, wow, oh, this is like the worst thing that could be. And right. Realize it's not. Well, that's. That's no, very that's eloquently perfect. said. Very that's perfect. Eloquently said. And I appreciate and, the opportunity. Yeah. Well, let me step in then. And, and again, thank you for your service to your country, to your fellow airmen. Can't think to, of a greater country to serve. Right. Amen. No matter what the news tells us. Amen. No, there's a, to find a better one. There isn't one and hasn't been. Thank you to you, sir. Thank you, Fig. This is awesome. And the opportunity to do yeah. this has been a wonderful blessing. Thank you to Dave Hamilton over at the Mac Geek Gab who Thank helped you, us Hamilton. put this all together. Yeah. Thanks to our sponsor, Robin's Bird Brain Designs, to help you get custom gifts out. Thoughtful custom gifts. Would you like a coaster with your squadron logo and your call sign, with your fraternity or sorority logo on it? Anything that you need a custom gift for, Robin's Bird Brain Designs will etch that for you and make it right. A special thank you this week. We just started our Patreon page where you can go and help support this show financially. This show doesn't uh, come free to us to put out to you. It's a labor and a cost of love, but we're now beginning to the point where we're needing to ask for a little help. We started the Patreon page, and thank you to our first two Patreons, patrons, Chase Cole and Earl McCoy. Thank you very much, gentlemen. We appreciate your, uh, your pledge to help support this show. 
If you want to ask us any questions, you can reach out to Fig at SoThereIWas.us or me, Repeat, at SoThereIWas.us. We're planning a 75th show about getting into aviation, learning to fly. Whether you're 15 or 55, get out to the airport and do it. If you have questions about how to do that, how it's going to work, we ask that you reach out to Sticks at SoThereIWas.us. Sticks is going to help us put that show together, and he's helping us with a bunch of admin support on things like our glossary page. You heard terms here tonight that you don't know what they are. Shoot us a note, and we'll get that term defined and up on the glossary page for you. And with all that being said, all I can tell you is till next week, stay safe and check six. I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fond of all the shit I was wearing all that day. Now an F-16 is cramped enough, but it's even worse with all that stuff supposed to save your life. But we knew there was no way. Cause when you're going down the North Atlantic, man, it's over. And like the song says, it's over.